All right, welcome to our fourth edition of the Missouri Farm Bureau uh, Virtual Legislative Briefing Series. I'm Eric Bold, Missouri Farm Bureau's Director of Public Affairs and Advocacy. I'd like to welcome you to this fourth installment and uh, hope that you'll ask some questions of us uh, in a moment. I'll turn it over to President Garrett Hawkins, but before that, I'll give you a handful of instructions here of how to ask a question. Um, First of all, if you would like to ask a question in Zoom, just put it down in the Q&A at the bottom of the screen, and we will try to answer it there. Uh, well, we will try to answer it live. Um, if you are uh, watch, watching us on Facebook Live, just type your comments in the box below the screen where it uh, allows for Facebook comments, and we will keep an eye on those and try to answer those as well. Lastly, if you are joining us on the telephone, you can still ask us a question. Just text it to us at 573-326-4501. Again, that is 573-326-4501. And just send us a text there and we'll try to answer that on, the, uh, on this webinar. All right, and lastly, if you would like to go back and listen to anything that you hear today, it's gonna to be available on our Facebook page. So just go to Facebook and search for Missouri Farm Bureau, and you should be able to find it right there. The audio of this session will also be on our Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau podcast, and you can subscribe to that at mofb.org slash podcast. Uh, we'll also put a link in our weekly newsletter that should come out on Monday, and you'll get that when you sign up for alerts at mofb.org slash newsletter. Again, that's mofb.org slash newsletter. All right, I'm gonna go ahead now and turn it over to our president, Garrett Hawkins. All right, thank you, Eric, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I hope you're staying dry. Well, let's face it, let's, that's pretty much impossible uh, the past few days, a nice combination of snow on top of mud, right? Um, well, I hope you all are doing well. Ironically, I'm in the process of writing a commentary about spring being right around the corner. And uh, as I write, I can't help but uh, look out the window and see what's with us. So uh, today uh, we have a great panel uh, of our own staff. Uh, you all know our team members well. And now that we're at the halfway point in state legislative session, now that stimulus checks are hitting bank accounts and mailboxes, there's just a lot of things going on. And so we thought, what better way to, to get everyone up to speed uh, than just the, the Capital Connection newsletter, but also focus this virtual legislative briefing on all things Missouri Farm Bureau and what your team is doing on your behalf. So first up in the lineup today is Kelly Smith uh, to talk about a new endeavor that he is taking on within marketing and commodities. So Kelly. Thanks, Garrett. Good afternoon, everybody. Many of you all will remember several years ago when Missouri Farm Bureau purchased new generation cooperative tax credits back in the heyday of the biodiesel and ethanol plant building phase. A few years back, we quit doing that. We had some recent requests to uh, maybe start that program up again. And so we've taken the steps to, to resume that successful member service uh, that we had. Uh, beginning on June 1st, we will start purchasing the new gen tax credits again from our members. Uh, these are the tax credits that are administered and issued by 
the Missouri Department of Agriculture through the MASBITA program there. And when a farmer invests in a new value uh, gen processing facility uh, that is qualifies, uh, they get the tax credits with that. One of the reasons that Farm Bureau was asked to begin uh, the purchasing the tax credits again, many times and most of the time, those tax credits are discounted out on the open market. And recently somebody told me they were only gonna get 80% uh, of the value. Farm Bureau will be purchasing these at 100% of the face value of that particular tax credits. This way we will be helping our member maximize their investment uh, in a new generation co-op. And it's our way of encouraging another way that we can encourage value added processing uh, in our state. Again, we will start purchasing them on June 1 and every quarter after. So that will basically be June 1, September 1, December 1st, and March 1. These dates coincide with the uh, insurance premium tax liability that our insurance companies pay. And we're very happy that they are partnering with us to be able to offer this service back to our members. Uh, if you have any questions, you can contact me at any time. If you have a question for today, uh, use any of the methods that Eric uh, talked about earlier with that. And with that, I'd like to go ahead uh, and introduce Leslie Holloway, who is our Senior Director of Regulatory Affairs. Thanks, Kelly. Um, today I'm going to talk about climate change for our regulatory update. And we're going to start with a slide that I had actually used in our first um, virtual briefing that showed language from one of the executive orders that President Biden signed very early in the administration. And I'd call your attention to that second goal there, conserve at least 30% of the nation's lands and waters by 2030. Many of you have probably already heard something about that. There's quite a bit of speculation about what exactly that will mean. We really don't know yet. Um, however, the executive order also did call on the Secretary of Agriculture to put together a group to advise him on that particular issue. If we could go to the next slide, Spencer. This is the language from the executive order, and you can see that the Secretary of Agriculture is directed to collect input from a number of different stakeholders, including farmers and ranchers, um, about how to best use Department of Agriculture financing and programs. And the underlying language focuses on exactly what the recommendations will pertain to, but there's voluntary adoption that they're calling for, climate smart agricultural and forestry practices, we already have an idea of what those are, but I'm sure we'll be hearing about some that uh, we may not yet be familiar with. Wildfire risks are also addressed, carbon reductions, and then source sustainable bioproducts and fuels. And USDA has issued a public notice just this week calling for public input on these question categories that you'll see on the screen. The four question categories are listed and then an example of one of the questions I've included under the first two bullet points. So climate smart agriculture and forestry is one category and the question there, how can USDA encourage the voluntary adoption of climate smart agricultural and forestry practices in an efficient way where the benefits accrue to the producers? The second category, biofuels, wood and other bioproducts and renewable energy. 
how can incorporating climate smart agriculture and forestry into biofuel and bioproducts feedstock production systems support rural economies and green jobs? The last two categories you can see pertain to wildfire and environmental justice. Moving to another one of the executive orders that we talked about in the first week. This is the uh, other executive order specific to climate change. And the reason that we have that up this week is because there has been a lawsuit filed by Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt. Um, he was joined by 11 other state attorneys general in challenging the president's authority to issue directives called for in this executive order and specifically um, those pertaining to the social cost of greenhouse gases. I'll also mention that just today, you see the Keystone Pipeline permit on this uh, slide and a number of attorneys general, including Attorney General Schmidt, have also filed a challenge to this executive order on the basis of the Keystone Pipeline which was permit, which was revoked. But if we could go to our next slide on the social cost of greenhouse gases, the executive order actually um, put back together a group that had been disbanded by President Trump um, called the Interagency Working Group, which was responsible for coming up with a social cost of greenhouse gases. Under the Trump administration, they decided to go back to a figure that was lower than what had been in place during the Obama administration. And then the Trump administration also disbanded that group. This executive order puts that group back together and it defines that the group that's responsible for coming up with this figure has defined the social cost of greenhouse gases as shown here on the screen. So it's the, the social cost of greenhouse gases, monetary value of the net harm to society associated with adding a small amount of that greenhouse gas to the atmosphere in a given year. And then at the bottom of that slide, you see there are three gases that we're talking about for greenhouse gases. Carbon is the first one, technically carbon dioxide, but carbon is what the focus is there with carbon dioxide, methane, and then nitrous oxide. This group goes on to say about the greenhouse gas uh, social cost, it includes the value of all climate change impacts, net agricultural productivity, and then you see other human health effects, property damage, disruption of energy systems, um, and ending with the value of ecosystem services. Then finally, this group says, the social cost of greenhouse gases therefore should reflect the societal value of reducing emissions of the gas in question by one metric ton. What this all means basically is that there's going to be a dollar value put on the adverse health and environmental impact of emissions, that value will then be factored into the value of the cost benefit, the value into the cost benefit analysis equation for regulation so that the estimates of costs to those being regulated will be lower than they otherwise would. This is going to be the way that the administration attempts to put back into place some things like the clean power plan and the other things that were deemed to be extremely costly in terms of uh, regulatory impact. The last few things I'll talk about just generally, but we expect to hear more about climate change, of course, from the agencies you'd be thinking of, typically EPA, Department of Interior with the Fish and Wildlife Service, 
and some, of course, Department of Energy. But what has been interesting over the first few weeks of the administration is how the financial system regulatory agencies have been uh, in the news quite a bit. And for instance, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission has established a climate risk unit. This was just announced yesterday. The Securities Exchange Commission has established the Climate and Environmental Social and Corporate Government Governance Task Force, also focusing on climate change. The Federal Reserve Board has been uh, in the news, as well as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. So those types of proposals will be going way beyond uh, agriculture, way beyond uh, direct environmental impact, and getting into um, global financial um, systems and markets. There's been quite a bit of media attention. We know that there will be a lot more media attention on this, and, and we're all uh, learning a lot as we go along. Very few details at this point, but um, President Hawkins has done interviews. You may have heard with Brownfield uh, Ag Network. There was a Reuters news story that not only included quotes from Garrett, but also from Lafayette County Farm Bureau leader, leader Gary Rekoff. Today, there's a Wall Street Journal editorial talking about carbon dioxide and how that may result in standards for ozone, which would be the way to get at carbon dioxide. There have been congressional hearings over the past couple of weeks, and American Farm Bureau has been providing testimony at those. We'll hear more regulatory proposals as newly appointed agency heads take office, and then, of course, there's litigation that we will expect. The, the words that you'll hear again and again uh, coming from the ag community um, will be, we are going to seek voluntary, incentive-based, market-driven um, options for trying to address some of these issues. And so we will be developing that message and uh, be happy to take any questions on that. If you have any questions, please type them in and we will move on to our next update, which is BJ with state legislation. Thank you, Leslie. Um, here we are at the uh, legislative spring break. It's uh, always a great time to get to catch up and actually spend some time looking at where we stand on legislative issues that Missouri Farm Bureau has been working on in the state capitol. Um, it's kind of the unofficial halfway point and uh, we've got about eight weeks of session left and a lot of activity. I'm happy to report that when we came into session, we were talking about three issues of talking about property rights, infrastructure, and strong agriculture. And we've seen some good movement on all of those issues um, as we look towards the second half. Um, we've probably told you before, but uh, Representative Mike Hafner in the House has House Bill uh, 527 to prevent merchant transmission lines from having the power of eminent domain. This is our number one priority is making sure that we're protecting landowners, not only in the path of the proposed merchant transmission line, but for everybody across the state. You know, when this bill was testified on in the House, uh, one of the people in favor of the project actually said, we're setting a precedent here that if we let this project go through, we'll have multiple lines going through the state. And that's been the talking point for Missouri Farm Bureau for some time, that we shouldn't be letting these people take people's property without having to freely negotiate that. And so that's one of our main priorities, and we'll continue to push that. We're happy to see House Bill 527 pass the House by a vote of 123 to 33 just a few weeks ago. So that bill will now proceed to the Senate. Um, Senator uh, Bean has the bill in the Senate. He has a similar bill in the Senate and probably will pick up House Bill 527. That's what we would expect to see happen over the next couple of weeks. So that conversation is now going to proceed to the Senate where we'll be fully taking on the issue as we focus on that as our number one priority to accomplish this year. 
Another issue that we've been talking about for some time is infrastructure and fun and finding more funding uh, for our state's roads and bridges. You've heard Missouri Farm Bureau talk about for some time that our members have recognized the needs for additional funding. The Senate, just before they left for spring break, uh, passed Senate Bill 262, which would pref which would put in place an incremental increase of two and a half cents per year, um, up to a total of 12 and a half cent total um, increase on the motor fuel tax. Um, and that bill actually offers a refund provision. So payers across the state could actually file the paperwork with, uh, with the state and actually get back that increase if they chose to. So it would be something they would have to opt into for the, re for the refund, uh, but it is actually a refundable increase on the motor fuel tax to allow some extra funding for our state bridges. Um, also, in addition to that, on the broadband front, when we talk about infrastructure, we're always talking about broadband as well and trying to connect more Missourians. There's a few bills that have been filed and seen some action, uh, but the main issue on that is funding. Uh, there was $5 million included in, this, in the governor's budget to go to the state's uh, broadband grant program, and we're excited to see that. We have not seen the House's proposed budget come out yet, but we expect that funding to stay. Um, Spencer may talk about it or not, but I've also heard word that there's quite a bit of broadband funding included in the stimulus bill. Um, so I do think we're looking at the edge of a, a lot of opportunities to help connect uh, Missourians with broadband. On the legislative front, considering broadband, I also think we will see um, some of those legislative efforts move. And most of those are just providing additional options for areas to increase um, broadband in their own areas. So some exciting news on that front as well. Another issue, obviously, Missouri Farm Bureau, it's right in our name. We're talking about a strong agriculture in the state of Missouri. Um, House Bill 529, the Missouri Made Fuels Act, which establishes a statewide biodiesel standard, um, was perfected in the House just before spring break. So that bill just needs one more vote in the House before it will proceed to the Senate. And there's a Senate bill also in the Senate that's had some early movement, and it's ready for actually for floor debate as well. So we're encouraged by that. That's something we've been talking about for some time. You know, this would allow Missourians to grow more of their own fuel right here in the state. It's also a green energy. It burns cleaner than, than standard diesel. Um, so you're establishing a lot of goals at, at one time, as well as making sure we're a little bit more fuel independent right here in our own state. So excited about the activity on that as well and look forward to seeing that move in the second half. Another issue that we've been talking about and probably you've heard me before talk about is um, the Department of Agriculture and their MASBDA, the Small Business Development uh, Tax Credit Programs, those expire regularly. They sunset if the legislature doesn't take action. And we're encouraged by the fact that the House passed House Bill um, 948 to extend those tax credit programs into the future. So that was um, passed by the House, still needs to be taken up by the Senate. And the Senate bill that does the same is actually on the, on the calendar for perfection. So we're excited about that. We've seen a lot of great early movement um, and then another thing is the private pesticide applicator training program. Uh, I've seen positive movement on that as well and expect that conversation to take part in the second half of session. So that's another thing we need to do to make sure that the state is still taking care of our training program here um, rather than having the Environmental Protection Agency, the federal EPA come in and take over that. So we're excited about a lot of these opportunities um, and, and have had really great positive movement on our priority issues headed into session. Um, Spencer, you can flip to the next um, slide. 
when we look at the bigger picture of the of the legislative session, there's other issues that are going on. If you if you open the uh, newspaper or watch the news, some of the issues I just spoke about, which Farm Bureau is focused on, may not be the ones you see taking the headlines. But here's a here's a few that you'll see uh, probably making the headlines, including taxation. Um, there's several tax related issues that are are taking a lot of the headlines, talking about internet sales tax and whether or not we should be taxing businesses that are selling into the state. Also property tax and, and, that prop, and that personal property versus real property. And what is the most equitable way to be taxing Missourians? Election issues uh, took a lot of conversation there at the end of, se end of session in the House. They spent a whole evening debating where we should be on elections, including um, an issue that Missouri Farm Bureau is very interested in, looking at initiative petition reform and whether or not it should be more difficult to change our state's constitution. You know, we believe that <clears throat> the Constitution should be a guiding document and not something that should be changed just by a 50 plus 50 percent plus one vote. Um, so they're looking at that, looking at some initiative petition reform measures, and we're excited to see where that conversation goes in the second half of session. Obviously, after the last election, there's also um, some typical voting and election security issues that were considered during that part. And obviously, education reform. You probably can't hear much about the session without hearing a conversation of education reform. And the last one there is COVID liability reform, um, where we're looking at whether or not businesses should be liable if someone got sick, as long as the business was being a good actor. So there's a lot of issues taking headlines in the, in the state. Uh, if you have any questions and if any of these uh, ring a bell for you, go ahead and type those in, get them in the queue so we could talk about them in a little later. Uh, but for now, that's the update on where we are on state legislation. Um, it's been a busy first half, um, looking forward to a busy second half. And with that, I'll pass it over to Spencer Tuma. All right, thanks so much, BJ. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, wanted to just give a very brief update on the goings on in Washington, DC right now. Um, certainly there's been a lot dominating the news cycle, particularly over the past couple of weeks. Uh, President Hans Hawkins did mention that the stimulus bill, uh, some people call it the stimulus bill, some are calling it COVID-19 relief, some people are calling it the American Rescue Plan, which was the title of the bill. Um, that did pass the House and the Senate and was signed uh, by President Biden late last week. So um, I won't go into a lot of details of the stimulus bill because quite frankly, there was a whole lot of items in that bill that didn't have anything to do with agriculture. Um, but overall, the price tag was $1.9 trillion. Um, kind of just a couple of quick hits. BJ mentioned there's significant funding uh, that will hopefully come to Missouri for rural broadband deployment, um, as well as there's some changes. Um, USDA received some additional funds to do commodity purchasing programs, similar to the Farmers to Families Food Box program, which some of you might be familiar with in your local community. There were no changes um, to the rules of the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, and I know we talked about this in the previous couple of sessions. Um, Leslie mentioned the executive order that required a freeze and review of all pending programs. Uh, so the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, or CFAP, is still temporarily frozen and under review at USDA. Now, you'll recall in our last session that we had acting state FSA director Jeremy Mosley on. Um, he indicated that this is just a pause in the program. Uh, we continue to communicate with American Farm Bureau, with USDA, with our congressional colleagues that we would like to see 
um, that we would like to see that program resumed as quickly as possible. For those of you who are contract poultry and hog growers, um, there, there was a provision in December that allowed you to take advantage of that program. The original deadline for application to CFAP was going to be the end of February, but because the program's under review, they have decided to extend that deadline. So if you haven't gotten your application in yet, we would encourage you to do so. Talk to your local FSA service center. Right now, uh, USDA offices are still kind of operating at partial capacity due to the pandemic. So definitely give them a call or send them an email before you wanna go in, just to be sure they're available to visit with you at that time. Kind of on other legislative fronts, not related to really COVID or the stimulus, uh, tax discussions are really starting to ramp up at the federal level. Just last week, we saw Congressman Jason Smith introduce the Death Tax Repeal Act, uh, which would permanently repeal the estate tax. It's a very big priority for Missouri Farm Bureau and American Farm Bureau. The bill had, I believe, 127 original co-sponsors, including Congresswoman Wagner and Hartzler, as well as Congressman Lutkemeyer Graves and long uh, as original co-sponsors with Congressman Smith's bill. Senator Blunt is an original co-sponsor of the bill on the Senate side. Um, that's going to be very important as we start talking about the tax provisions that the Biden administration has targeted for reform. The estate tax is one of those, as well as stepped-up basis. So we're keeping an eye on those conversations. Uh, I anticipate probably over the next couple of months, we're going to hear a lot more about those two things. Um, so we're having discussions and laying the groundwork uh, to ensure that we can hold the line on those important issues that we made some progress on in the previous administration. The last thing I'll mention is some of you may have seen that in the Senate, Senator Deb Fisher from Nebraska introduced the Cattle Market Transparency Act. Um, and that's a bill that is supported by Missouri Farm Bureau and American Farm Bureau. The bill basically does three things broadly. It establishes regional mandatory minimum thresholds for negotiated cash trade um, to improve price discovery in cattle markets. It also equips producers with more price information by establishing a beef contracts library and also mandating packers report the number of cattle scheduled to be delivered for slaughter uh, on a 14-day scale, um, as well as strengthens confidentially confidentiality excuse me, requirements under livestock mandatory reporting, which is the the provision that governs most of these items. So uh, we we're excited to see that bill or introduced in the Senate, and we do anticipate that the House will be introducing a version here, hopefully in the next week or so. So um, that was quite a lot for a very short period of time, but just once again, if you have any questions, I think Eric's going to go over the instructions for typing those in, uh, but that's all for me, and we look forward to your questions. Thanks, everybody. All right, Spencer, thank you very much for that, and everyone, all of our panelists, thank you for those updates. As Spencer just mentioned, we are going to take questions now. If you have any questions, please put them in the Zoom Q&A or put them on the Facebook Live comments section, or you can text them to 573-326-4501. That's 573-326-4501. Uh, first off, I wanted to pitch this over to President Hawkins. Um, I know that he's had a lot of uh, insights and thoughts about what's happened with the Biden administration on the climate change initiatives that they are trying to uh, get put into law. Um, Garrett, what are you 
uh, hearing from people on that and, and what are your, some of your thoughts on that issue? Sure, and, and Leslie, thank you for the comprehensive update that you gave that really provides, uh, I guess, the landscape of what's happening on a lot of fronts. You know, I'll say it's hard to pick up a farm publication these days uh, in which we're not seeing a lot of chatter and a lot of optimism in the role that farmers can play in sequestering carbon through what they're calling climate smart practices. And uh, clearly, um, as an organization, we want to make sure that, that we are advocating for, for market opportunities, ways that uh, farmers can diversify income streams, right, for your farm. At the same time, I think it's really important that we, that we keep this issue in perspective. You know, it was 10 years ago or so uh, under the Obama administration that, a, uh, that there was a lot going on with regard to climate change and carbon, a lot of which uh, Missouri Farm Bureau and American Farm Bureau opposed. And so we have taken a different approach, uh, a more proactive approach this time around. American Farm Bureau is one of the members of the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance, believing that it is important that we have a seat at the table um, even with folks that we may not necessarily align with on a lot of issues, but it's important that we're at the table. And so you're going to hear us talk a lot about, you know, as these discussions unfold, first of all, I think it's important that those who are engaged in this discussion start from a point of appreciation for all that farmers have done historically. Um, we do a lot uh, every day on our farms, livestock, row crop, all farmers, uh, and we are providers of solutions in this discussion and should be seen as such. Um, I also think <laughs> that it is important as we talk about opportunities in the marketplace that we don't lose sight of what may happen on the regulatory front. Uh, that it's all well and good to maybe receive uh, money for selling a carbon credit, but what happens if the cost of everything we touch and use in the form of inputs goes up because uh, of regulation? And that's what Leslie ha has talked about. And so when we talk about social cost of carbon, please keep that term in your minds because that term will be used and underpin regulate regulatory proposals that we're going to see come down the pike. And we as farmers, it's imperative that we talk about not only the positive things that we do on our farms, but also point out um, what it takes to actually put out a crop, right? Or to put up hay. I mean, we are major users of energy, right? We depend on fertilizer. All these things are critical to, to what we do day in and day out. So it's going to be important that we're telling that story. story. And ultimately, you're going to probably hear me talk about uh, not just the social cost of carbon, but the social cost of hunger, ultimately, if it, is, if it becomes harder for us to do what we do, and that's produce food, fiber, and fuel. So just know uh, we are very engaged in this discussion, and we'll be taking a very all-encompassing view, again, looking for opportunities for farmers and ranchers, while at the same time being vigilant and monitoring and engaging in regulatory discussions. All right. Very good, thank you, Garrett. Um, we're gonna turn to our questions. Uh, first from the Zoom Q&A, we uh, have a question that's uh, I think for PJ to maybe give us some insight into. What are the consequences of getting rid of property tax? Would that result in money in taxpayer pockets or would it shift the burden for schools, police and fire 
to other payers like farmers or businesses? Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. Um, that's really what the debate when we were in the Senate just before break, it was talking about the taxing real property versus personal property. And the initial bill was to get rid of the personal property tax. Um, and, and that becomes something everybody, you know, nobody wants to pay taxes on, on anything or any more taxes than we have to. But when you start talking about eliminating the tax, the question immediately goes to, okay, how do we make up for the funding? Uh, Missouri Farm Bureau uh, members, when we looked at this issue, actually said we would favor um, eliminating the personal property tax if there was an equitable way to fill that need. Um, but that we're uh, uh, concerned with shifting the burden from personal property to real property taxes. Because let's face it, um, we have to fund the functions of government, whether it's a local government, just like was used of schools and roads and bridges. We all know those functions of government aren't easy as fire departments and police departments. All of that funding has to be allowed to happen. Uh, we rely on those things on a daily basis and everybody does. So that's really where the details of the question come from is, and it's a great question. And I don't have the exact answer. The truth is there would have to be some shifting um, to be able to still function as we are. You know, one of the one of the answers is, well, maybe we don't have to have all of these functions uh, and maybe there's places where there could be some cuts. Um, but I think if we expect the same level of service, we're going to have to find some way to fix that. And as far as where Missouri Farm Bureau stands on that, we're concerned if that's just a shift from personal property to real property. So I, I don't know if that's a detail enough answer. It's not a perfect answer, but the truth is that's that's the crux of the issue right there. Is okay if we can eliminate one, that would be great. But how do we fix? How do we fill the hole that it leaves? All right. Uh, the next question is something that BJ, you and I were just talking about yesterday in the office, and that is, what are the prospects of seeing redistricting finished in 2021? Yeah, um, I, I just listened to something. And like you said, we just had this conversation. I, I would say that the chances of it being done before the end of this calendar year are slim uh, because of the census numbers coming in and the processes that have to take place after that. Um, I think it's probably slim that we see it before the end of 2021. I think we're probably talking early 2022. I think those that are involved in it hope to be able to have the process done before the filing deadline. Um, but the interview I was listening to just yesterday was actually talking about possibly having to extend that filing deadline um, to allow the redistricting to get finished up. So um, hoping that we're able to see a normal process. Um, Eric, you may know more about the census timing. I know you had some maybe some insight on that, uh, but it sounds like it's going to be a delayed process. Yeah, it's certainly been significantly delayed and it had been delayed throughout last year because of COVID, of course, uh, that delayed being able to go to everybody's house and take the census for those who hadn't answered in, in mail, in paper. And um, I know that there, there were also some court challenges that delayed the process as well. So um, we haven't gotten a firm timeline from the Biden administration that I've seen about when those numbers are going to be delivered to the president. But unfortunately, we're just um, a little bit behind where we wish we were. And uh, no one has a, a definite answer yet. Eric, if I may jump in on that, I have had a couple of questions just this week related to redistricting. Several have asked, um, you know, after the last census, Missouri did lose a congressional seat. Um, I've read several studies and, and looked at a lot of the data, preliminary data. At this time, it looks like we're going to remain at the same number of House members uh, at the federal level. So um, if that changes, we'll certainly, you know, make sure people are aware of that. But right now, we don't anticipate uh, losing or gaining a seat in Congress. 
Yeah, we are highly unlikely to lose one since we just lost one last time, and it was just right on the edge. I think Minnesota and Missouri were in a battle to see who was going to have to lose one, and we lost. Um, so next time around, it seems like we ought to be in good shape. Um, next question we have is uh, from Barry Bean, who asks if we can elaborate, and I think this is uh, came from Leslie's presentation, can you elaborate on the 30% of U.S. land moving to conservation? Yeah, um, that 30% for conservation is still pretty ambiguous. Um, in fact, the Secretary of the Interior from New Mexico, uh, former Congresswoman, she had actually introduced a resolution calling for the 30 by 30 last year, and she was asked during the confirmation hearing to elaborate on what that would mean for Department of Interior and the Biden administration, and she did not provide any details. So there is still a lot of information yet to be determined about what exactly that means. All right. Um, next question is from Ted. He says, can the money the state received in the most recent COVID bill be used to help with our highway funding? And where would Farm Bureau stand on that? I'll, I'll touch on the first part and then BJ, if you want to take the rest of it. Um, you know, I'm not sure how much specifically in the stimulus bill was given to the state for transportation. Um, I do know, I recall from the past stimulus bills with with previous funding pools, there was a little bit of confusion about how exactly those funds could be used. BJ, I don't know if you've seen any reports. I know we've seen um, numbers for broadband, but I don't know that we have seen numbers from transportation yet. And, and I'm unsure how that would be used to supplement the state's current budget. Yeah, um, as far as I can see, I haven't done a deep dive into transportation. I do know there probably will be a lot of holes in the budget um, used for stimulus funds. There's a lot of resiliency stuff that you could you could use to uh, add other budget issues. And I don't know the specifics of this bill as much, but I know the previous stimulus bill was not about plugging holes. So there may be some opportunities there directly related to the stimulus. I do know the state has had has been receiving more money than they thought they were going to as far as actual revenue funds. Um, so the one thing I would say as far as funding from like a one-time source, you know, a couple of years ago, we did a bonding option because the legislature wasn't ready to take up um, a full funding process, but they said, let's do some bonding to allow one-time funds. And that's how the state was able to um, actually get the funds from the feds to uh, replace the I-70 bridge just west of Columbia. Um, so things like that, a one-time shot in the arm would surely be welcome. We would love that. But what the, what the infrastructure process really needs is long-term consistent funding to fund it, help fund the process year in and year out. So although we would love it and, and welcome any funding we could get, there's lots of needs across the state um, the one-time funding would be good, but what we're really in need of is long-term consistent funding. All right, we had another question from Dennis, and he says, he asks, are there any ideas for initiative petition reform that look likely to move forward this year? On the IP front, um, there's actually two of the main focuses of the conversation are um, signature gathering and then the vote threshold to get across to actually amend the state's constitution. Now, let's keep in mind, this is to amend the state's constitution, not to change um, statute. You can do both through initiative petition, um, but the idea being that there should be a higher threshold to reach that. 
Um, I believe the bill that passed the House was uh, 66% or two-thirds. Obviously, that's probably a, a negotiating point, but they're actually are looking at raising that vote threshold to change the Constitution um, and then also requiring signature gathering in all congressional districts. You know, a lot of people don't realize this, but at this point, um, you only have to go to six of the eight congressional districts, uh, which actually, if you look at the state and where the congressional districts overlap, you could go to a handful of counties and reach the majority of the congressional districts and leave out large portions of the state. Those, both of those issues are issues that Missouri Farm Bureau has had policy in favor of, which is requiring signature gathering in all congressional districts, as well as increasing the vote threshold um, to amend the constitution. And this really comes back to, you know, should our constitution be something that is a broad document or should it be, you know, a guiding document and then the statutes go from there. Our, our constitution has really grown over the last few years um, and, and we're seeing things put into the constitution that probably fit better in statute. Um, so I think that's really where this conversation is headed. Um, and there's a lot of people that are interested in it as we've seen more and more, um, let's be honest about it, out of state interest looking to influence the constitution uh, through the initiative petition process. Right. Next question comes from Jason Kurtz, Northwest Missouri. He says, uh, BJ, I wanted to know if you are aware of a bill that would allow open enrollment for students to go to another district to participate in school sports. The only requirement would be that they drive themselves or their parents take them over to that school. Yeah. Um, Ring of the law. I don't want to take all of the questions, hopefully, but um, I will take this one. Yes, there is a bill um, related to what they're calling open enrollment. Um, there's a few more restrictions as I, I listened to the debate as we were uh, watching legislation. Um, but the bill actually requires the school districts to say they're welcoming students. So the receiving district has to prior say, we can take a certain number of students at a certain level. Um, so you're not just going to be overwhelmed with unexpected numbers of students. I think the idea being that you could plug holes where you may have non-full classrooms. It also says the receiving district cannot be required um, to take on additional, additional services by receiving students. Um, so there's a lot of details to that bill, but yes, there is a bill um, that was taken up on the House floor, perfected. I'm not sure the details of exactly where it is, but moving, I would say, um, to allow for an open enrollment process. Um, the idea being, if we're looking at school reform, that this may be a more palatable um, education reform rather than uh, charter schools and others, where this is an opt-in kind of thing, um, and, and both the receiving and the and this lessen the impact on schools overall, um, but allow for some school choice. Great. Uh, we'll move to a question for Spencer. Give you a break for a second there. Uh, this is from Ben Brown. He says, is there any estimate of how many Missouri producers would be impacted by the proposed thresholds? I think this is a, a, the estate tax for um, transitioning a farm from uh, generation to generation. A number on the top end would be the number of farms with total farm values over the threshold, but many farms are split up among heirs at transition falling below the threshold. Just curious if we have an idea of what the number might be. Yeah, thanks, Ben. I appreciate you jumping on. Um, I actually do have information on 
how many Missouri farms would be impacted at the current level that the estate tax is set at, and then also if it were to revert back. Um, unfortunately, I don't have that split out um, based on transitions plans for heirs, but just kind of broadly. Um, so currently, the $11.58 million exemption on the estate tax that was passed in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, looks like there's going to be about 2,290 Missouri farms, somewhere thereabouts, uh, that would be impacted by the estate tax at that threshold. Um, if it were to revert back, which is something that the Biden administration has said they are they are looking at, uh, that number jumps all the way up to 5,893, so almost 6,000. Um, from an acres perspective on cropland, uh, right now under the current exemption, that's about 3,280 acres on the average. Um, if you're doing the 11.58 million, if it reverts back, that's going to be about uh, 1,643 acres, uh, depending on what the value is assessed at. So um, it's certainly very interesting, very scary. Um, and it, that's something, you know, Farm Bureau has been a really effective messenger on this issue in the past, and we will continue to do so. Um, but I'd be happy to talk with you offline more broadly about those numbers uh, if you have additional questions. And there have been some suggestions by the Biden administration and some of their allies to get rid of stepped up basis as well and a number of other proposals that Missouri Farm Bureau and American Farm Bureau have been pushing back on strongly because uh, any of those type of changes could really devastate family farms all across America. Um, so one more question we have here. Now, if anyone else has questions, please put them in the Q&A or put them on Facebook, uh, on the Facebook Live comment section or you can text them to that number I gave you a second ago that I just took away from my screen, so I can't give it again. Um, but uh, the last question we have so far is, what are the odds of seeing right to repair legislation this year? I understand that the Chamber of Commerce is opposed. Yeah, um, we actually had a bill relating to agricultural or right to repair for agricultural machinery um, just, I believe it was the Wednesday before spring break, um, which is saying that um, those manufacturers have to provide the manuals and the information needed uh, for farmers and independent shops to be able to do repairs on their own equipment. Um, uh, this is something Missouri Farm Bureau has had policy in favor of for a couple of years, um, saying that we do believe that farmers and ranchers should have the diagnostics and the tools necessary to repair their equipment. Um, the, the equipment manufacturers and other groups have come out in opposition to it. And I think when you talk about something like this, there's a lot of details involved. There really are. There's probably some legitimate concerns of what can an individual do to a piece of equipment that might make it unsafe or, or outside of, of legal standards related to emissions and things like that. Um, but I think the details will, or the, the devil will be in the details of where we could get with a piece of a legislation like that. Uh, while we do think um, we need to have the tools at our hands, um, there probably are some concerns there. As far as the chances of it passing, I try not to guess about whether or not something will pass in the legislature. Um, the legislature can prove you wrong either way on any given time. But there is some legislation moving in the House. I will say at this point, there hasn't been anything in the Senate that I've seen or any movement of a bill. Um, but there is some, that conversation is happening in the House and has for a couple of years. Um, so don't be surprised. Uh, Representative Hovis out of Southeast Missouri um, has that bill and is very interested in it. And it is something that that we look forward to continuing the conversation on as we look for farmers, ranchers to have more options um, as, as, as well as approaching their equipment. 
Yeah, and BJ, I would just add on to that. American Farm Bureau is kind of re-engaging on the right to repair issue. I know there are several issues with state legislation moving, and they're kind of at different points in the game, but uh, the American Farm Bureau board did meet last week and had a very uh, robust discussion on right to repair, which AFBF has extensive policy on. Um, Part of our policy is to seek a memorandum of understanding with some of those major equipment dealers uh, to try to reach common ground about where and how farmers and ranchers can have access to those particular um, parts and equipment manuals and that sort of thing. So um, hopefully that conversation is going to get restarted at the federal level as well. I know President Hawkins has been very engaged on this issue over his career. So I don't know, Garrett, if you have anything to add on that. Oh, Spencer, I think you've covered it well. You know, as AFBF shifted to um, issue-focused advisory committees some time ago, this was one of the first issues that was talked about by the Technology Advisory Committee. We've had several members from Missouri serve on that committee through the years. So, you know, it's an issue that, that continues to simmer, um, but no real tangible, I guess, um, result yet. I think the MOU approach, again, that approach was taken by the, with the auto manufacturers some time ago. So that may be something that, again, the AFBF, as you, uh, as you articulated, Spencer, that can be looked at. So, so we'll see. But yes, it's one that uh, has been around for a little while. All right. Well, I think we've answered everybody's questions. So um, we can... Uh, get to the end of our webinar for this week, but if you have any questions that you think of later, feel free to shoot us an email anytime and um, we'll, we'll always be happy to talk with you or, or give us a call here at the home office. Happy to answer any questions we can anytime, doesn't have to be during a webinar. But uh, for closing comments, I'll toss it over to uh, President Hawkins. Thank you again. All right, well, thank you to the team. Thank you to all of our participants today. Uh, make sure, encourage your fellow members to, to check us out after the fact, and you can go back and, and look at previous legislative briefings as well. I'll just say I have enjoyed over the last couple of weeks, post Celebrate Agriculture, Thank a Farmer Week. I have enjoyed seeing all of your posts, all the pictures, all the stories, the things that you've done. Uh, to engage in your communities and counties to, to celebrate agriculture and to thank a farmer. So, so just thanks for all that you do to engage every day. Thank you for talking to your legislators. I think hopefully you leave this briefing today armed with more information as we think about the second half of the state session. It's only going to get crazier from here, folks. So being armed with, with this information going into to this next uh, stretch is really important. So as always, you know how to reach us. Just thanks for all that you do every day. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Take care.